people say, you know, you say is, is, this is devastating and these restaurants are going to go out of business. And they say, yeah, well, you know, someone will come along and open another one. And like, really? The people put their whole life into this, right? So they don't say that about airlines, but they do say it about our industry where, again, um, the majority of our workers are low income. They are, they are immigrants. They are women, they are people of color. They are the most vulnerable part of our society. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Almost daily, the American media are announcing 200,000 cases of COVID-19. That's daily. Everyone on the planet has been affected in some way by the pandemic, but it beggars belief to see our friends in the US and indeed in much of Europe, and what they're going through. With the closure of restaurants again in California, and little to no support from the US government, what will happen to one of the most vibrant and rich hospitality sectors on the planet? Daniel Patterson is the chef and restaurateur behind Atla Group, which includes two Michelin star Croix in San Francisco, Alta Adams and Adams Wine Shop in Los Angeles. He is credited as one of the sparks that ignited contemporary Californian cuisine. Daniel, you've done so many things, I can't actually list them all here and your influence is almost immeasurable. How are you feeling about um, your incredible hospitality industry at the moment in the US? Um, well, first of all, thank you very much for, for having me on and, and for saying such nice things. And uh, man... I, I just, no one's ever seen anything like this, obviously, uh, all over the world, everyone is suffering. Um, we, we in the United States have particularly been suffering from, uh, a lack of, um, uh, grown up humans running our country. So, you know, I think that's really exacerbated what was already a terrible, terrible, um, uh, pandemic, but you know, for, for us in the, in the hospitality industry, I think, you know, there's, there's, there's kind of two things. Uh, one is that obviously we are as a, as an industry, um, programmed to help people, you know, we want to feed people. And so there's been, um, so many instances of, uh, tours and chefs who have shut down their restaurant, who have, lost everything showing up to feed people who have even less than they do. And that, I look at that and I think, wow, you know, that's, that really makes me proud to be part of this industry. The other, the other side of that is, is you, you have uh, an industry that's been, I mean, it's, it's been devastated everywhere. And I really don't want to, um, you know, say, say that we have been, you know, um, the worst hit, but certainly amongst the industries that most rely on, <laughs> well, we can't work from home, you know? So, um, and, and I think, um, part of the, the challenge for everyone has been the lack of leadership, which kind of has given a yo-yo sort of effect. You're closed, you're open, but you're not inside. Outside's open, outside's not open anymore. Now do takeaway. Wait a minute. We're going to try inside again. Just kidding. We're not. 
you know, and, 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 and so meanwhile, we're all just like, like, you know, you're, you're getting a lot of the shrugging emoji going around and also the, uh, the, the kind of palm and face emoji, because we're just like, what do you want us to do? You've had so many, as you say, like changes to regulations and shutting down again. And hospitality is renowned for really slim margins and sort of almost week to week cash flows. Um, what's, what sort of impact is this going to have if things don't change soon on, on the sector? Well, it's already been devastating. Um, uh, something like 100,000 restaurants have already shut down permanently. Wow. Um, that's going to keep happening. And, um, you know, it's a big number. We're a big country, but um, I think that from from what I read in the news, they're going to come through with some kind of more stimulus. But what they're not doing is putting it in the form that's going to work for everyone. Uh, loan distributed through the banks, um, disadvantages certain sectors of our industry that we should actually be uh, protecting even more. And instead of leaving them hanging out to dry, so a lot of the, the, the smallest restaurants who don't have access to capital, who do not have the deep relationships with banks, this is disproportionately uh, businesses owned and run by women and people of color. Uh, it's exacer- the, the whole pandemic has really exacerbated the existing inequities in our country, and it's made it very clear um, that, that our, that our government doesn't, or I should say, hasn't really cared about healing those. And like everyone, well, <laughs> like, like 55% of the country, uh, I'm very hopeful about the incoming, uh, administration and their commitment to our environment, to, to, to healing these deep wounds that we have in our country. Uh, which are which are really self-inflicted and self-perpetuating, um, but 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 we can actually do something about it. And so that's that's I, I think our our ray of hope. Well, that ray of hope is really interesting because it's been a really devastating year, and it and it still is devastating. But the election recently, which I think the whole world was waiting on those results. Like, what was it like experiencing that as an American to um, to see that unfold and and have the result? such a positive result. Oh my God. I mean, it was crazy, right? So it happens over several days. So like night number one, I, I, I go to bed just like depressed, like everyone else. And again, I say everyone else, but not everyone else because, uh, whatever 45% of the country voted for Trump, which is, is so extraordinary to me and, and really speaks to, um, very, very deep problems in this, in this country. And then the next day and then the day after. And then so they finally figure out that Biden's won by Saturday. And um, I, I was doing uh, an event at, at Alta with um, the Los Angeles chef, Naisha Arrington. And we met at the farmer's market to talk about, and this is, you know, way back in the dark ages when we could still surf outside. And uh, so we have a beautiful patio. And so um, we, we had a really amazing dinner. We were met there the morning that, that, that Biden had been, that, that it had been called for Biden. And the atmosphere 
at the farmer's market was so joyful and light and the sun came out and everything was just like, it was like a magical moment. And then of course, the very next thing that happens is the, the, the idiot in chief who is outgoing, thank God, decides that uh, it was a stolen election and he's going to start fighting. And so then we've had to endure this prolonged temper tantrum. As, I don't know if you have children, you really, really recognize this. It's like when they don't want to leave, you know, they're about three or four and they're just clinging to whatever that toy is they're playing with and you have to pry it out of their hands and all the other parents are looking at you like, get your kid in line. What the hell is wrong with you? You know, and that's how I think about our, our president. Everyone else around the world is looking at us going, God damn. Get, get, get some control on that guy. And so here we are. Now we've gone through this really archaic process, which leads to an election and then electoral college. And, and it's put to bed. Even the Republicans are saying it's done. And, and, and dude's still out there going, no, no, it's not done yet. So it's been a very surreal uh, process. And unfortunately, the chaos factor has... Um, kind of impeded on the joyfulness, but I think what everyone is noticing is a sense of, and when I say every, everyone, you know, I mean, just people in their right mind who are, um, who are, who are noticing that a president elect gets up to speak and they don't cringe. It's like we're coming out of this abusive relationship. Every time Trump would open his mouth, we just like, just like, oh my God, don't yell at us. Don't say anything bad, you know? And, and so I think generally what we're going to see is, is a, a calming influence and a, and a positive and, and, and more grounded approach to addressing these very uh, like, like catastrophic consequences that the pandemic has had on, on our entire society. So, so we're obviously talking about the, the restaurant industry. Now, when we're talking about the restaurant industry, we're talking about 11 million people who work in restaurants and 5 million people who are delivery drivers and, and, and work in, in meat plants and on farms. 16 million people, that's 5% of our country. And even more than that, if you think about people who are actually in the workforce, that is a, an enormous part of our country. So one of the, the challenges that we've seen, and I don't know if you've seen it uh, in, in other places, but people say, you know, you say it's, it's, this is devastating and these restaurants are going to go out of business. And they say, yeah, well, you know, someone will come along and open another one. And like, really? The people put their whole life into this, right? So they don't say that about airlines. They don't say that about uh, car manufacturing companies, but they do say it about our industry where, again, um, the majority of our workers are low income. They are, they are immigrants. They are women. They are people of color. They are the most vulnerable part of our society, and they are let, being left hung out to dry by our, by our government and by our, our infrastructure yet again. And so the one thing as we talk about, yes, it's sad to lose a restaurant, and I am sad that I've lost things, but... I can go out and get another job. Like, I'm not worried, right? But that is not true 
for so many people who are living on the edge or in poverty, paycheck to paycheck, protections for uh, rental evictions are going to be coming due soon. And, and the, the human suffering aspect to this, I think, is the, the most uh, awful part and the most heart-wrenching part because it's true. More people will open restaurants. More people will invest in them. That's not, that's not really the biggest thing. It, it, it matters. Of course it matters. But, but we, what's even worse is that we are just not taking care of our people. These, these are citizens. They deserve the same love and respect and, and protection that, that anyone else has. And they're just not getting it. You know, and, and that part of it has been absolutely heartbreaking. How important has this sort of short period of time and that change of government been for the mental health of uh, everyone in the US and particularly in the industry? Has it, has it helped in a sense of hope? Um, yeah, yes and, and no. I mean, of course, it provides some sense of hope, but like it's gone so far. I can tell you from talking with all my friends, like my, <laughs> my inbox, my, my, my text messages are full of just people who are fed up and exhausted and, 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 and they've been trying to, um, they furlough people, rehire them, furlough people, rehire them. They keep ev- trying to keep everyone motivated, trying to keep jobs. Uh, you know, no one right now, who owns a restaurant is thinking, I want to make money. I mean, sure, fast food restaurants, and, and there's a few outliers. But for the most part, we're like, we want to, we want to protect our team, um, and we want, to, we want to have something for them when, when, this, when we come out of this. But we are in, I think, the most dangerous point. I think everyone's exhausted. I think um, mentally, emotionally... Um, I think the mental health generally in our industry is always terrible, but right now it's worse than I've ever seen it. Um, and from very strong and positive people, kind of, um, really, uh, kind of, um, communicating some, some cracks in their, you know, usually very upbeat personalities and I've felt it, you know, and I think that I've worked very hard uh, for myself and my own life to, to really just focus on, on being grateful and, and, and to, to accept what I have and not really focus on what I don't have. Um, And even so, like this has been an extraordinary uh, moment for, for everyone to engage with. So I think we're not, because the cases are so high, because the deaths are so high, because all of our hospitals are still full and the vaccine is still a couple months away, I think it's going to be a few more months before people really start feeling uh, truly hopeful. Sorry, that was depressing. Well, well, let's look at something that is really quite beautiful. And although you know, some of the world sees American food through the fast food chains that... 
um, are spread out across the globe, but for those lucky enough to venture to the US, it's an extraordinary and rich uh, culinary landscape. And you've been a massive part of the Californian culinary landscape. Can you tell us a bit about Californian uh, contemporary food and and the way you um, have um, delivered that in your restaurant? Um, I, I moved to California um, when I was very young, uh, about 30 years ago in 1989. And uh, when I first moved out, I was very lucky to meet and, and work with and eat the food of some of the, the people who were a part of the um, kind of um, the, the first wave, the Chapinese movement, the Judy Rogers and Alice Waters and, uh, and, and so many um, really amazing cooks that were focusing, refocusing the attention of the food on the ingredients and on the importance of um, how the, the environment and how the animals are treated and how that plays into deliciousness. And, um, you know, I, I opened my first restaurant in 1994. I was 25 and I knew absolutely nothing kind of like every 25 year old. And, um, I I mean, I, I still pretty much know nothing, but then, wow, you know, I, I would, but, but I was in a, in Sonoma, which is, um, about an hour or so North of, of San Francisco. Um, it's next to Napa, but very different. It's more agricultural. And back in 1994, it was very sleepy in, in the sense that people who were more high powered looking for that, um, kind of, um, extravagant wine country experience as we think of it now, um, would go to Napa. Napa was the slick and fancy place and, and, Sonoma was more like overalls and down to earth. And uh, so, so for some reason decided to go there and open a fancy restaurant. Um, because if there's one thing I've, I've proven is that I have just no sense when it comes to choosing locations. So um, we, well, it was interesting. I mean, we did many things that I thought um, were really hard, but, but they were, they were, something that I stuck to, like, for example, um, we had a service charge and everyone made the same. And this is 1994. No one was talking about that. Um, and that was something that I think really helped foster a sense of, of, um, family and, and kind of togetherness in, in, in what was a very small restaurant. You know, we had 30 seats in our fancy dining room. And then we had a little cafe out front, um, which, which we, was really for the locals, you know, and, and for people who didn't want to spend a lot of money and we had grilled cheese sandwich and roast chicken. And, um, I, I'm still friends with people who work there from the day we opened until the day we closed. And it was really special, you know, and I got to, I learned a lot from the farmers who were nearby, who grew the, and raised the animals and, and, and the vegetables and the, you know, what I, learned and what I took away and what I felt was so powerful about California cuisine is this sense of freshness. Um, always for me, um, uh, lightness, um, always did a lot with vegetables and that was kind of my, um, 
kind of start in understanding California cuisine was from, I, I think, what was coming out of a, a tradition that was very, it was very powerful. And, you know, I, I left there, I opened a place in the city called Elizabeth Daniel, which was, was fancier, but I kind of got away from the farmer's markets and the farm a little bit. And I felt like um, that closed after 9-11. It just couldn't, that area, it just couldn't make it. And when I went to open Qua, um, which was 2006, um, I, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about what, how, you know, I was from the other side of the country originally. And um, sometimes I felt like uh, I was still kind of a stranger in, in, in California. And I thought, what could I do to, to bring myself closer to, to the, the land and to the place and, and, and in turn to bring um, my cooking closer to the people who live there? What can I do that's really focused towards the people who actually live there? Because I feel like, you know, that's where food is most successful. So, you know, it really came out of that searching plus, um, um, I, I had met someone whose, whose, whose mother was, um, uh, worked in a lot of areas in the Sierras and in, in kind of very, um, uh, sparsely populated areas, um, going through walks and, and her, showing me some of the edible plants and some of the things that I hadn't really been able to see before and starting to think, you know, what, what is it that, that I could say using some of these ingredients that really weren't available. And I knew that I had to do something different and well, anyway, that was never really hard because I was always kind of an outlier and and no matter what, I was going to do something different, but I really wanted to do something that wasn't represented and, and also, um, and, and then also like, like four months before we opened, I, I wrote a story in the New York times saying that maybe we could have a little more imagination in our cooking and which, which went over, I would say well and not so well in some ways. Um, it, it was, uh, it was controversial because everything was very locked into a certain way of looking at things. So I was very conscious of I wanted to be, I wanted to do something that was really focused on, on creativity and expression and that was generous in its, uh, uh, in, in an emotional sense, something that was, um, that, that we put a lot of effort into and that was really genuine and, and honest. And, and, you know, when we opened, and by the way, uh, Qua is next to a strip club. Um, I was once on stage with with uh, someone, and they were asking me a question when the Qua book came out. It was like seven years ago, and they said, "Well, what 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 what, what is it that's really unique about your restaurant that you know you've done?" And, and, and so I joked, you know, we're the only two Michelin star restaurant next to a strip club. Um, which I, I do think is still true, but it was also a terrible location, but it was a very freeing location because I think a lot of what we did was to try and take the symbols of fine dining and scramble them a little bit so that we did a lot of things like, um, instead of burn it, we use handmade pottery. Um, we work with a lot of wild ingredients. We had, uh, one menu, which no one was doing uh, at that time. 
and um, mostly vegetables. Um, kind of this combination of modern and ancient technique, uh, kind of a less formal approach to service and the, the non-tablecloth and all of that. And um, it, I guess, you know, maybe uh, I got lucky, um, hit a zeitgeist that kind of resonated with people. And also I will say that, you know, the one thing I'm so, so proud of about Quaz is the people who work there extraordinary people like i think you know all up and down the west coast you see um so many of the best restaurants from um coquine and, and portland and also um uh, uh berlou and saboteur bakery in seattle and rich table and Comi and, and um taco maria in, in orange county and la i mean so many so, so many people that work there contributed and there was a real um, sense of purpose. And it was a very crazy, chaotic time because we tried a lot of things. We took a lot of risks. We failed a lot. Um, and, and at one point, I think my sous chefs had to sit me down and say, okay, you cannot change more than two things on the menu in one day. And I'm like, okay, sure. I get it. It's too much. And, and I swear to God, the next week I come and I'm like, okay, we're going to change this and this and this. And they look at me. I'm like, no, no, no. I swear to God, I've got this totally dialed in. And of course, one of the three dishes was a disaster. But that, but, 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 but because of, um, I, I think because of the people, because of the, the sense of discovery and the, 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 the sense of, of, of love for, for the, kind of the cooking process for each other, for what we were doing in, in a real genuine kind of effort to connect with, with our area. Um, it just kind of forged something new. And, and, and so I think, um, I would say, you know, it feels really special to look back at that, at that moment in time. And, and, and I feel great, you know, I look around the Bay area and I see so many ways in which, we were able to kind of um, be be a part of other people's, you know, um, way of doing things, you know. So that that was really kind of what what that story is about. And and now, you know, my question is, okay, what's next? And that's the story that that remains to be written. You know, you're not only one of the major influences from a culinary perspective, but you've also focused on. Um, how the restaurant industry distributes opportunity and um, those that are disadvantaged and people of colour in the industry. What has been the challenges in tackling that? Because you've really taken that head on. I mean, uh, some stuff we've done has been amazing. Some stuff uh, was a disaster. <laughs> and, 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 um, and, and I think uh, I... How do I put this? I didn't always choose good risks, you know, and um, I think sometimes um, I, I could be more optimistic about about people and situations and, and my seeing the best in things, I think, um, you know, sometimes creates more challenge. But I think that when I look at what we've done, for example, um, uh, we worked with uh, a nonprofit called Rock United for 
over three years to develop a racial equity program, which is really designed to remove implicit bias from how people hire and train and, and advance so that everyone has the, the same chance of success. And during the, the shutdown, the, um, one of the founders of Brock went to found One Fair Wage, which, as the name says, is really about um, they, they're tackling the minimum wage, which across the country, and this is a lot of people in other countries don't know this, but it's really extraordinary that the minimum wage is is like two fifty, three dollars, three fifty in most of the country. In forty two states, they have what they call a tip credit. So they say we're gonna pay you this minimum amount, but we're gonna assume that your tips will take you up to the minimum. And and study after study has shown that this uh, is regressive. It falls um, you know most heavily on, you know, if you look at the servers across the country, they mostly don't work in fine dining. They work in in Denny's, in fast food restaurants, and diners. And what this does is it leaves them vulnerable to uh, uh, abusive situations through their managers, through their customers. Um, it is it, it creates more inequality. And not only that, it puts more pressure on the public support system. Uh, you know, welfare benefits, for example, the amount of Fast food workers who are also on welfare is extraordinary because these giant corporations are just not paying people properly. So, so that's been their focus. And I, I called her and I said, you know, what if people use their shutdown restaurants to feed out-of-work people? And, and she said that's and, – and we weren't the only people that, that had this idea. But the different thing about our program, which is called High Road Kitchens, um, is that – she said, okay, great, but those restaurants have to commit to paying at least $15 an hour, which is no big deal in California because we're already either at or above that. But in most of the country, it is a big deal. And, um, and they have to agree to participate in this racial equity program, which starts with assessing how well a place is really doing and, and how much opportunity they're really uh, creating at the higher level jobs for everyone. And, and then once you assess, you say, well, we've got some stuff we can work on, and then here's how you can work on it. So um, that program started in California. It's now in, uh, I think, New York and maybe four or five other cities. Um, it's in Boston. I think they're doing it in Chicago and Detroit. And, and what's incredible about it is that it's, um, the, the local governments are seeing the benefit of businesses that um, prioritize um, how uh, more equality and, and, and hiring and, and promoting because it, it just, it, it, it makes for a better society. It, it addresses through the, the private sector problems that honestly, you know, government should be dealing with and they're not. And so they're, 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 they're starting to fund restaurants that are just doing things better, which is amazing. So like, you know, I think a lot of these problems that we have can be addressed um, in different ways. And one of those ways is through government support. And we've seen, especially this year, um, and, and 
the wake of the, the murder of George Floyd and all of the protests and all of the raised awareness of, of how much our, our society needs to, to, to change, um, we're seeing local governments wanting to support restaurants who are interested in doing this work. And so that's very different and, and, and really a profound shift that, that I'm excited about. A little earlier, you mentioned that right now it's for you, it's about what's next. Has, has this year changed the way you perceive your role in the industry and what you want to do? And do you, do you have an idea of what might come in the, in the coming year for you? <laughs> oh man. Um, I'm trying to figure that out. Do you have any advice? <laughs> <laughs> um, so when, so in, in 2015, uh, I stepped down from Qua. I brought in um, Matt Kirkley, who who did a great job, and I, I just, you know, I I was so I have a nonprofit called the Cooking Project, and it started about ten years ago, and it teaches kids, mostly inner city kids, um, basic cooking skills, because a, a lot of kids grow up in in households where they don't even know how to. They've never seen a head of cabbage. I mean, of, of like cauliflower or something, and they don't know how to feed themselves well. And 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 what you eat and your mental health are so linked. Your physical and and and, and mental health. And so we worked with a, a a nonprofit that took in kids from the street and and kind of got them back on their feet called Larkin Street Youth Services in San Francisco. And that's how the cooking project started. And we had different chefs come and. Um, we turned it into a curriculum and we work with different schools and, um, you know, we did a lot of different kinds of work, but that was really where I started to see the enormous difference between the access to good food that myself, my customers had and, and a lot of people coming out of, um, more low income backgrounds. And, and so by 2015, I just kind of had reached a point where I felt like I'd done everything I could do at Qua. Um, I felt like I, I was kind of burned out. It was a lot of years of working 100-hour weeks. And, and so, you know, I, I wanted to do some other things. And I just wanted some time away. I just didn't want to cook fancy food. And, and so I did some other things. And... Um, I think one thing that I'm excited to do is is to get back into I don't know cooking, for lack of a better word, fancy food again. Um, in but to do it in a slightly different way. So partly I'm thinking about that because I don't want to do the same thing I did before. Um, I think uh, like um, I don't know, just for me, like once I've done it, I don't want to do it again. Which was the strength of Qua and also our our weakness. Um, I'll, I'll never forget um, uh, the <laughs> director of Michelin coming in in like 2009 when there were no, uh, I, I guess, um, or, or right in the beginning. And he was, he told me like, you know, he's like, you know, you'd have three stars if you didn't change your menu so much. And if you didn't, you know, take so many chances like you don't have the consistency because there are big things about consistency and I really wow you know like for me at that time especially I I was I, I think I had more 
bound up in 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 people's opinion of me and and in ratings and i thought wow i really just blew it because like i'm just not programmed that way you know i would rather try something new and fail than do the same thing i did yesterday and succeed and because that moment of discovery like for me it's like the times where we weren't pushing in the kitchen the food just kind of felt like uh it missed something like it enervated it was like uh just wasn't i don't know the whole thing just wasn't right so um maybe it's just kind of how i am but like i never want to do the same thing i've done before so the question of what's next is not just a question for me it's a question for everyone you know but for me personally uh i think um there's there's a some evolution of style that i'm kind of excited to explore and i love alta adams and i think we've done a really good job um with um keith corbin who's the chef here uh partner in crime and um kind of managed to get us through this time of tightening stuff up and now we're going to open um a little fast casual spin-off called Luella's Cali Soul. Um I'm going it's going to be Keith's place on the help him and so like projects like that are really exciting. Um kind of bringing the cooking project down to Los Angeles that's really exciting to me and I I think that once everything does reopen there's going to be kind of a burst of energy and the question is how can we harness it and how can we direct it in a way that that feels positive and 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 loving and supportive and that's something that i think about all the time well so, we're fast approaching a new year and you'll have a new government and a new leader what what are, what are your hopes for the coming year i i i hope um that we as as a as a country as a society can um can can find more kindness in ourselves and more openness to each other to see our the places where we are more um similar than different and and maybe to maybe i hope for a uh, leadership that can value our our shared humanity because i think that that's the ultimate dividing line you either believe in our shared humanity or you don't and if you don't i don't even know how to talk to you you know so we have become so um constricted in this country by um uh antagonism and hatred and we've become uh so set into all of the ways in which um other things other people other groups other ways of thinking are just wrong and so what i hope for is uh i mean this is going to sound i don't know super hippie and new age but uh more more love and more kindness and more compassion and um more acceptance of ourselves and 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 of each other and and i think that that's the only way that we can start to heal a lot of the 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 wounds that we have well i couldn't agree with that any more 
Uh, Daniel, we're honoured to have you on Deep in the Weeds to not only share your story, but a, a real glimpse into what it's like in the US at the moment. Um, good luck in the coming year and please keep in touch and we'll talk again soon. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's HOSPO community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.